find uh, Nehemiah as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah. And we'll be looking tonight at the subject matter, Onward Christian Soldiers. Nehemiah. If you're joining us tonight for the first time, we are up to chapter 6 now. And we're looking at a conspiracy chapter tonight, conspiracy against Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakaferim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop when I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahatabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets whom, who wanted to make me afraid. Now folks, as we think about this chapter of spiritual warfare and Nehemiah pressing on, I want you to think with me about the words of the well-known hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe 
Forward into battle, see his banner go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. Glory, laud, and honor unto Christ the King. This through countless ages men and angels sing. Onward, Christian soldiers. That's what I think of when I read Nehemiah chapter 6 and I see all of the different attempts that they made to uh, get him to stop the work that he was leading the Jews in and how he had to press on and keep marching through every point of resistance that he faced. Now in the last two chapters we have seen various forms of opposition. Does anybody remember what those forms of opposition were? What was the first one? Ridicule. Thank you, Kathy. They came against the Jews from the outside. It was, it was the neighbors who did not want to see them rebuild. It was opposition from the outside. And they were mocking the Jews and they were ridiculing them for even attempts to try to rebuild the wall. And saying, you know what, if you built this wall, even a fox, if it were to jump on it, would knock the wall down. Well, Nehemiah's walls, folks, ended up being nine feet thick. So it would be quite a big fox that could knock that wall down, right? But anyway, that's what they were trying to ridicule them with. It was ridicule and mockery. And then they, they uh, threatened violence. And you'll remember Nehemiah had to put them on the wall. They're working with one hand and they've got a sword on, on their side in their other hand. And so they're working and they're setting the guard and they're protecting themselves. Now the third form of opposition came how? Okay, now that will be tonight. What was the third form that we looked at last week? Greed. It came from within. The first two forms of opposition came from without. The third form of opposition came from within. You remember what was going on? Exactly. Okay, good. Uh, the more wealthy among them were gobbling up all of the assets and all of the land. And they were giving loans to their brothers at high interest. Jews, according to the Mosaic law, could charge a Gentile interest, but they could not charge a fellow Jew interest 
And so they were driving poor members of their community into deeper poverty with the high interest that they were putting on them. To the point that the poor were even having to sell their children as slaves and servants. Nehemiah confronted them about that. And to their credit, they agreed to stop it and pay back everything that they owed. And so Nehemiah dealt with that. You know, Nehemiah was more than a leader, wasn't he? He was a statesman. Not just a leader, a statesman. We need more of those today, don't we? Well, once these forms of opposition were dealt with and they got busy again, uh, by the time we come to chapter 6, we see that they have completed the wall with the exception of the gates being hung. And so it's been a very productive time. In fact, we're going to find out later on in chapter 6 tonight that all of this work got done in 52 days. Remarkable progress because of God's favor on them but before they can celebrate victory opposition rears its ugly head once again in chapter 6 we see opposition in the form of intrigue innuendo and intimidation a unique characteristic of this opposition was that it was aimed squarely at Nehemiah. Now the previous forms of opposition took aim at the Jews and that didn't work. They tried to dishearten them and discourage them and get the work to stop. Well, when that didn't work, now in chapter 6... They turn on Nehemiah directly. One writer said of Sanballat and Tobiah, their wounded pride will not be appeased until Nehemiah has been humiliated. It's the old strategy, sack the quarterback. That's what they're trying to do in chapter 6. Folks, the average person has no idea what leaders go through. Leaders are often blamed for things they didn't do. And they're criticized for things that they did do. They're misquoted. They're misunderstood oftentimes. If they act decisively, they're accused of being too domineering. If they sit back and try to be more patient, they are accused of inaction and ineffectiveness. Few people understand the trials of leadership. What we see in this chapter is that opposition never Rest And because opposition never rests, we have to constantly be vigilant against our enemy. Now, I trust that from the book of Nehemiah, you can see today that we have an enemy. As I've mentioned previously in this series, 
oftentimes Satan will come against us directly himself. But it may not be Satan. It may be his demonic army because he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere all at once. And so he has a demonic army. And it might be demonic attack. Could be satanic attack. Could be demonic attack. Also, Satan uses people. We have an enemy, and we need to understand this, that he never rests. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that he is a, as a roaring lion going to and fro through the earth seeking someone to devour. Folks, we've got to be vigilant, don't we? We've got to be on our guard. And so again tonight, we're going to see that our opposition never rests, which calls for constant vigilance. The first thing I want you to see with me tonight is opposition by intrigue. Opposition by intrigue in the first four verses. Let's read those verses again. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I'd built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to this time I'd not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at uh, Hekferim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. What is it that they try to do? They try to lure Nehemiah away from the work altogether, ultimately to harm him. Now they imply that they simply want to meet and talk. It's interesting where they want to meet. They want to meet in the far northwestern corner of Judah in the plain of Ono. It would have been a pretty good journey. It would have taken Nehemiah an entire day to get there. It was all the way over near Joppa on the coastline about seven miles southeast of Joppa. That's where they want him to go. That's where they want to meet with him. It would have been more up in the territory of Sanballat. It would have been a long journey and it would have been a fruitless journey. Somebody could say, but why not meet with them? What's the harm in meeting with them and just talking? Maybe they realize that they are beaten now and they want to talk about what their role is going to be to help you out now. So meet with them. Maybe it's an innocent meeting. Folks, that would be foolish and naive thinking though. And Nehemiah didn't bite. Somehow, maybe the Lord directly revealed it to, to Nehemiah. We're not told how, but Nehemiah knew that they were trying to get him far away from the work. And he knew that they were trying to do him harm, bodily harm. Nehemiah is dealing with evil men. 
Folks, you and I need to realize that there are evil men out there. Let's not kid ourselves. Some battles we fight are child's play. But there are people out there who want to do nothing more than bring harm to God's people however they can. You've got to love Nehemiah's fortitude. You've got to love his response. Four times his enemies press him for a meeting. And four times he gives the same response. And look at his response. He says, I'm carrying on a great work and I cannot come down to meet with you. Why should the work stop while I meet with you? Nehemiah is a leader with a laser beam focus. He's not about to get sidetracked. You know, when you, when you understand clearly that God has called you to something, you can operate with that kind of laser beam focus, can't you? Do you know what God would have you to do? Do you understand clearly what God's call upon your life is? Do you know that? Do you know that you're saved, you're a child of God, and you're in God's hands? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? And what your place in God's kingdom work is? And do you operate in your life with a sense of mission? A sense of calling? Or you just kind of treading water and getting through life, going to church, checking off the list, going home, coming back the next week, doing it all over again. Or do you know what your mission is and do you know what your purpose is? I hope you do. If you don't, you need to ask God to make it clear to you. Folks, the Bible says you and I need to redeem the time because the days are evil. And we need to understand the opportunities that God has given us. And we need to know where our place is. And we need to put our hand to the plow. And having put our hand to the plow, don't look back. There are too many people in life that get sidetracked. And then they start making excuses. Live your life with a sense of mission. Don't just drift through your Christian life without knowing what your purpose is. There would have been no purpose whatsoever in Nehemiah meeting with his enemies. Even if they could not have harmed him, they certainly would have tried to at least gotten him to redirect his purpose in some way. But again, Nehemiah knew exactly what God had called him to do. 
We talked about that way back in session one, didn't we? That four months that he is bathing the whole situation in prayer because he's getting ready to go before Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And he wants to let the king know what God has put in his heart to do. That four months he's been in prayer and God has been preparing him for his mission. And so Nehemiah knows what he's supposed to do. And he's not going to allow himself to be sidetracked. Folks, when you're in a situation like Nehemiah and you understand God's call on your life, that gives your life a certain energy and passion, doesn't it? You know what I also see in Nehemiah? I also see a perfect picture. Of the Lord Jesus, don't you? In the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Luke, there's certain times in the Gospel of Luke that Luke tells us that Jesus set his face straight forward to go to Jerusalem. You see that theme woven all through Luke's Gospel, don't you? Now, did Jesus know what was going to face him in, in Jerusalem? You betcha. He told his disciples, when I get there, men are going to mock me. They're going to reject me. I'm going to be put on trial, and I'm going to be crucified. And yet, Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Knowing what he was going to encounter there. One time Peter said, Lord, not so. That's not going to happen. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You, you're not minding the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus lived with a sense of mission. More perfect than anybody ever. And I'm glad he did, aren't you? Secondly tonight, I want you to see opposition by innuendo and accusation. Look at verse 5 and following. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel and that's why you're building the wall and according to these reports you wish to become their king and you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem there's a king in Judah and and now the king that is the Persian king will hear of these reports so now come and let us take counsel together Sanballat now sends this open letter, or as the NIV translates it, it is an unsealed letter. Now to say an open letter or an unsealed letter, what's meant by that? Open to the public. The impression is, as, as, as this person is making their way to Nehemiah with this open letter 
He's just he's telling everybody about it. Uh, he's just been repeating the contents of this letter, which is nothing more than lies and accusations. He's repeating it over and over and over to whoever will listen, to whoever will read it. He's letting them see the contents. It's an open letter. It's this old divide and conquer strategy. I'm going to try to get as many people on board with me as possible before I get there to him. And look at the words in this letter. Look at what he accuses Nehemiah of. You're only doing this because you're leading the people to rebel. You've already got it all planned out that you're going to be their king. And you even have prophets appointed who at just the right time they're going to announce that you're the new king. It is a letter filled with lie after lie after lie. But folks, it's also a very dangerous letter too, isn't it? Now why is it a dangerous letter? Because it, it purports to be a revolt against the Persian king. And they were known to come in over rumors of such revolts. They would come in and very harshly put down a revolt or a suspected revolt. In fact, something like this has already happened a little bit back in Ezra. Remember what happened in Ezra? These same people have written a letter to the king, to Artaxerxes, that the Jews are planning all of this so that they can revolt. And Artaxerxes responds, remember, this is before Nehemiah has ever come into him after that four months of bathing this situation in prayer. Remember, Nehemiah was his cupbearer. This is before all of that. Artaxerxes sends a letter back to him, says, you're right. It does sound like the Jews are only trying to rebel. And so y'all need to go and, and stop them. You didn't know Artaxerxes was the southern boy, right, y'all? Y'all need to go and stop them and not let them build. So they've already done something like this through a letter. But now this could be, this could be dangerous. Because if Artaxerxes feels threatened, it, it could be dangerous for Nehemiah and the Jews. And so with this open letter, they're trying to stir up this type of sentiment. And they're ultimately hoping that the Persian king is going to step in. If you've ever been in a leadership position of any time, uh, of any type, work, school, church, whatever. Maybe heading up your neighborhood homeowners association. I don't know. Just any kind of leadership. Where decisions were being made. Maybe a crisis was going on. People had strong opinions about different things. And you're the leader. And you get a letter accusing you of ridiculous stuff. Anybody ever been there? 
Anybody ever got anything like that? Phone call or a letter? Just ridiculous lies and accusations. People will say, oh, you're just trying to do such and such. Folks, that's not uncommon. Leaders face that. Look at how Nehemiah responds. He responds immediately. He points out what lies and accusations these are. And they're just made up in their imagination. Now some people say, don't respond to your critics. And I think there is a time and a place to heed that counsel. Don't respond to your critics. But again, a letter like this that could have been very dangerous to the Jews. I think it called for an immediate response. And that's what Nehemiah does. I think that's why he responded so quickly and so decisively. Folks, you know as believers we are never supposed to engage in gossip or lies or innuendo. We're never supposed to make false accusations like were made against Nehemiah. I hope you realize that as a believer. Your yes is to be yes, your no is to be no. Your language is to reflect your walk with Jesus Christ is to be honoring to the Lord and edifying to people Jesus said that lies come from the devil who is the father of lies and so as believers we always want to engage in the truth and tell the truth You know, in the Bible, when there was an issue that needed to be addressed, it had to be confirmed by how many witnesses? At least two. Why? Because God knows how easy it is for people just to make up something. This was made up lies against Nehemiah. Could have ruined him. You know, I'm I'm glad he had the relationship with the Persian king that he did because, again, a letter like this could have caused him a lot of heartache. Don't ever spread lies or gossip or innuendo that can ruin people. You know, we, we say today, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. The little thing we teach children, but words do hurt, don't they? They really do. We can do a lot of damage with words. Maybe you've even heard somebody before. Maybe you've been somewhere and somebody says, Hey, let me tell you something about so-and-so over there. Did you realize? And they go on to tell you about this or that. Don't even be a party to that. Don't even be a party to that. And if you do have something you want to address with somebody, go to that person directly in a biblical matter and sit down and talk to them one-on-one about it. Have the courage to do that, right? But again, these, these are unbelievers that Nehemiah is dealing with. It shouldn't really surprise us what they're doing with their words. 
Notice what else Nehemiah did. Not only did he respond swiftly to it, but what else did he do? He committed it to God in prayer, right? Aren't you glad as Christians we can say, God, this is your battle too because you're, you're my heavenly father. Aren't you glad of that? Thirdly tonight, I want you to see opposition by intimidation. Opposition by intimidation. Pick up reading with me in verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God. Within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. The last form of opposition that Nehemiah faces right here was outright intimidation. Apparently a man who was regarded as a prophet sent for Nehemiah. His name again, Shemaiah. He was shut up in his house. We're not told why. He could have been ill, could have been a health issue or some vow he had taken. Probably what is being communicated here is he's trying to give Nehemiah the impression that he too is in danger. Both of us are in danger. Look at me, I'm shut up in my house too. He tells Nehemiah that they need to go and shut themselves up in the temple because Nehemiah is in danger and they're coming to kill him. Now folks, what's not apparent in the English translations is what, what this guy is asking Nehemiah to do is to shut himself up in the inner chamber, the inner court of the temple, which was the place that only priests could go. Now, he's trying to do a couple of things here. It's clear that he's a pagan man, and he's not a true prophet because of what he proposes, But among the pagans, they had this belief that if you fled to a pagan temple, you were safe inside. Now the Jews had their cities of refuge. You could flee to a city of refuge. For instance, if you had killed somebody unintentionally, and while the whole thing was worked out... um, proving that it was unintentional, you could go to a city of of refuge and be safe. But what a Jew could not do was flee to the intersection of the temple. And so right off, Nehemiah must surely know that this man is not a prophet of God because he is proposing something that God has Forbidden in his word. Nehemiah is a layman. He's not a priest. He can't go into the inner courtyard of the chamber. Do you remember a king in the Old Testament who did that? Uzziah. 
He went into that inner courtyard, started acting like a priest. What did God strike him with? Leprosy. Exactly. Had Nehemiah listened to this guy, Nehemiah would have been subject to the discipline of the Lord and the discipline of the Lord's people. They could have killed him. And so anyway, the point is, Nehemiah knew that this was not of the Lord because the Lord will not act contrary to his word. Folks, I hope you know that. God will not act contrary to his word. Sometimes people will tell you, oh, God's, God's told me to do this or do that. God's told me to leave my wife. You think I'm kidding. I'm serious. People sit before a pastor and tell, oh, God, God's, God's led my secretary into my life. I'm going to divorce my wife and marry her. This, this is of God. No, it's not. I've heard that. I'm not talking about rumor. I've been told stuff like that before. God's not going to act contrary to his word. Nehemiah knows that this guy isn't authentic. He's not a prophet because he's telling him to do something contrary to the word of God. God won't do that. Now, on another note, Nehemiah also says, should a man like myself have to flee? Folks, this is not arrogance, okay? When Nehemiah says, should somebody like me have to flee? When you're acting with integrity and everything that you've been doing is an open book, everything's out in the open, everything's done with integrity, Nehemiah is saying, I don't have to run and hide like somebody guilty. There's a wonderful peace about your life when you know that your life is clean, right? And what you do, you do with integrity and your life's an open book. You don't have to be ashamed of anything. You don't have to fear. You don't have to hide. That's what's being communicated here. Now, folks, as we go through this chapter, you can really see lessons, some lessons on Nehemiah that were keys to his success. James Montgomery Boyce talks about a movie starring Michael J. Fox called The Secret of My Success. Anybody see that movie? It's about what, New York City business. Well, here we see secrets of Nehemiah's success. Let, let these be lessons to all of us. Number one, uh, boy says, we see Nehemiah's closeness to God and his life of prayer. We see Nehemiah's closeness to God and his life of prayer. Over and over and over again, we see Nehemiah 
committing things to God in prayer. Not only did he spend that four months in prayer preparing for what God had called him to do, but we've seen through the book of Nehemiah, every time Nehemiah gets in a crisis, he goes to God in prayer. He doesn't panic. He goes straight to God. He's dependent upon God. He's trusting God at every turn. And that ought to be a lesson to you and me to bathe everything in prayer. Number two, we see Nehemiah's sense of calling to a task that God has given him. I mentioned to you earlier that it's important to know what God has called you to do. When you know what God's called you to do, you can get busy about that and not get sidetracked. Thirdly, Boyce says, Nehemiah's self-awareness of his own gifts. Nehemiah was aware that he was in a position given to him by God... And allowed by the Persian king that he was in a unique position to make a difference. He was aware of that. Fourthly, we see Nehemiah's discernment. Nehemiah's discernment. He didn't allow himself to get drawn in with these different traps. Ask God to give you discernment. Wisdom and discernment. That's a gift from God, isn't it? And then lastly, Boyce says, we see Nehemiah's courage. He stood his ground on truth truth you don't have to be afraid when you're standing on truth now let's look at the close of this chapter a minute in verse 14 we see that Nehemiah commits his enemies to God in prayer boy now that's a dangerous place for the enemies of Nehemiah to be isn't it Nehemiah is saying, God, they're in your hands. God, you've called me to this. This is your work. I've done everything as you've directed me. I've done everything with integrity. These enemies, they've not just come against me. They've come against you and your work. God, you deal with them. <laughs> I wouldn't have wanted to have been Nehemiah's enemies. And then we see that everything's finished in 52 days. Glory to God, folks. All the nations around them, the close of the chapter, says all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Think of all the time the city had laid in ruins and the walls of the city had laid in ruins. 52 days later, amidst all of this opposition, the work is now done. 
people are able to see this is a God thing. And finally, as you read the end of chapter 6, you see that a lot of the internal opposition was due to intermarriage with people that they should have been intermarrying with. The old saying, blood's thicker than water. You, you see what's going on here with Tobiah the Ammonite? He's married into some important folks. So has his son, people of the higher classes in Jerusalem. And they've become committed to him. They've begun, they've, they've, they've started uh, being committed to Tobiah and his son rather than being committed to God and God's people. That explains a lot of the trouble Nehemiah's had, right? And isn't this why the Jews were to be very concerned that they were not to be unequally yoked? Because their hearts would be carried away from God. And so the Jews were only to marry other Jews so that the whole agenda of their life would be focused on God. But, but look at what some of them have done. They've married into these Ammonites and so forth. And, and these neighbors around them that they weren't supposed to intermarry with. And so their hearts and their priorities have been taken away from God. And so here's the guy that comes in, is trying to live for the glory of God, and they're opposed to it. Certainly a lesson to our children and grandchildren right there, isn't it? Be careful who you marry, right? Don't be unequally yoked with people who don't know the Lord. Again, that's where a lot of this trouble originated with Nehemiah.